Hi there. You just caught me reading my brand new book, Twin Peaks Unwrapped. The book, me and my co-host Ben Durant wrote this last year and it is now finally out at bluerosebag.com. This book contains over 100 interviews with cast and crew, community commentary, and of course, us. For example, here are some of the fine folks you'll find in this wonderful book. Krista Bell, Charlotte Stewart, David Patrick Kelly, Jim Belushi, John Neff, Scott Frost, Cheryl Lee, Matthew Lillard, and the one, the only, Kyle McLaughlin. So get your copy today at bluerosemag.com. It was Laura living in my dreams. It was Laura. The glow was life. Her smile was to say, it was all right to cry. The woods was our sadness. The dance was her calling. It was Laura. And she came to kiss me goodbye. Brian. Hey, Ben. Well, we've got another community rewatch, and we have both John Thorne and Richie English on the show. Hi, I'm Francine the Lucid Dream as Blackie O'Reilly, Shelley Johnson, Sarah Palmer, Norma Jennings, 52 Pickup Girl, Lucy Moran, and Maddie Ferguson. Hi, I'm C.D. Eady as Audrey Horn, Donna Hayward, and Maddie Ferguson. Hi, I'm Shay for the Dark Lord as Benjamin Horn, Jerry Horn, Pete Martell, Sheriff Harry S. Truman, Deputy Tommy Hawk Hill, Deputy Andy Brennan, Big Ed Hurley, Hank Jennings, Special Agent Dale Cooper, Special Agent Albert Rosenfield, James Hurley, Doc Hayward, Dr. Lawrence Jacoby, and Leland Palmer. And we are The The Pink Pink Room Burlesque. Like, we have the first season where David Lynch does the pilot and he does one episode, and then all of a sudden he comes back in the second season and he's doing three hours of uh, Twin Peaks. Watching all this, you can definitely see that David Lynch was probably filming all this at the same time, especially when it comes to the hospital. I mean, I think there's the hospital in all three of these hours. Right, you're right. I think that is the case. I think that Lynch was there and essentially shot the scripts for the first and second season two episodes back to back and was probably able to shoot all the hospital scenes at once. Yeah, makes make sense. It, make it easy. John, what do you remember about uh, watching the season premiere of the second season and you got Cooper on the floor and you got a waiter coming in? And Wow. Uh, I think like everyone, we were all a little startled that it moved so slowly. It doesn't really move that slowly it's just the anticipation after four months to waiting to find out what had happened to cooper we knew he'd been shot Uh, we knew that there were like seven or eight cliffhangers waiting out there to continue or to be resolved or find out what happened and then we get this long long scene where the the very slow moving waiter comes in and (laughs) and to lynch is teasing us in some ways i guess frustrating even though i don't find it frustrating now i think it's it's wonderful but at the at the time we were all eager you know lynch was telling us you know be patient just wait (laughs) so so that i do remember that just sort of on edge and and being forced to kind of to wait 
for them to tell it in their style. Yeah, definitely. And Richie, what do you think about this episode? Yeah, I'm glad that you brought uh, this up because I, I was thinking about this uh, earlier today. This is one of these scenes where I would show it to people who purportedly hate David Lynch. <laughs> like, like I, like it's just one of those scenes where you you can sort of go point by point down the line and show on like a variety of different levels why he's such a genius. And it's it has to do with the fact that by about the third time the waiter pops his head back into the room, I think we all were kind of like squeezing our chairs and just you know it started getting like really annoying, and then it just became like grotesque. <laughs> Like and that's the thing with David Lynch, you know, is is that you know people talk about black humor with him. Mm. I, there's not a color or shade to explain his humor. It's it's you never quite know if you should be laughing. And a lot of times, I find myself laughing just because I've been startled, or because I'm I'm, I'm getting agitated or upset. Mm. And this was the iconic scene for for that, for 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 me personally. It's very tense. Yeah. Right. It, it. You know, it's. Uh, you bring up a good point, Richie. Uh, you're laughing almost when you're uncomfortable. Uh, we, uh, ben and myself saw Firewalk with me in the theater, and we mentioned this before, so I won't go on about it. But there was a couple moments in that movie that are unsettling, but the crowd laughed at it. Yeah, it's like we're yes. dealing. We're dealing with abuse. <laughs> yeah, and and you see Leland peeking out the window as James and Laura drives away in the, on the motorcycle, and you yep. just see this creepy Leland face. Everybody laughs, yeah. and it was yeah, just. It's just like, what else can you do? Yeah, like there's something that's like when I'm glad you brought that up because when you see that face in that moment, immediately, and and, and we all know Lynch knew this. And it's just staggering because he knows that we know in that moment that this guy is molesting his daughter. You know, yeah, I mean, like, yeah. I, like it's and and suddenly it all you know hammers home. Especially if you were a fan of the series and you went and seen that movie, and you know we all kind of knew it was happening, but it, it just makes such a hard left so quickly that all you can do is kind of blow out laughing. I mean, what's the other reaction? Right. I can't really think of one. Just. To- go back to the waiter scene real quick i do think it is a it is a humorous scene i think it is a funny scene i think it was in some ways intended to be funny yeah it's just not necessarily funny the first time and, yeah. you know, you're, and it's not like it's serious or it's it's confusing or it's frustrating it's you know, yeah and i actually found that same thing happened to me you know as i watched the, the waiter scene in, in, in subsequent viewings i find it funny and i laughed at it It certainly did back in the day and that also happened to me with season three um the the scenes in the roadhouse when the uh, you know various unknown characters would be having these uh these fragmentary conversations that didn't connect to anything else they were frustrating because mm. they didn't connect to anything else and we were wanting you know to find out what was going to happen and then in subsequent viewings i'd sit down there and i'd watch you know these characters talking about their relationships and trick is you know out on (laughs) out on parole or whatever and i find those scenes hilarious i find them just absolutely um entertaining and funny and they're basically comic relief Hmm. uh so i think lynch has a way of doing that with some of these kinds of sequences which on the first viewing don't seem that funny you have to process them but once you kind of know what's going to happen and you can and slow down and now appreciate it for what it is the humor comes out a lot more yeah 
Totally agree. At this point, it seems like Mark Frost and David Lynch know that they have to reveal who the killer is. And and it's interesting that we're now really heading into Supernatural, the giant and this vision and giving clues and saying, this is how you're going to solve the, the mystery of Laura Palmer. How is that as a structure, you think, John, for you? Like, is that they decided to go in this the supernatural elements and that's how we're going to wrap up the the mystery. Yeah, this is this is definitely an important point to make. It may be the most important point to make about this episode, which is really a crucial hinge uh, in the entire narrative of Twin Peaks. I, and I've written about it uh, before. Um, this is the episode that essentially get you know puts us you know squarely in the supernatural realm. Mm-hmm. You can look at the first season, the first you know seven or eight episodes, however many hours it is, and while there are some hints at a supernatural element, it's pretty much a murder mystery with suspects and melodrama and you know these various things. But then we get to uh, the beginning of season two, and we have the giant appear and give. Cooper these, uh, you know, these cryptic clues. Cooper says, where are you from? And the giant says, the question is, where where, where are you now? Or some, something to that effect. Also, we get the uh, a, a renewed emphasis on Bob. Um, we knew there was a character called Bob, but he was really kind of this marginal figure in season one. And now in this episode, uh, Bob is emphasized, and certainly by the end of the episode he is, mm. as being essentially the killer. What happens in this episode is the question becomes less about who killed Laura Palmer, and the new question becomes who is Bob. And so you've got this supernatural element you know, really take center stage and it will will drive the rest of the narrative for this season, for Firewalk With Me and for season three. And it all kind of has some of its origin here. I mean, the dream sequence that Cooper has was really simply just a dream in season one. Well, now we, we begin to wonder if, you know, he was contacting beings from another world. This is the episode that shifts it into a whole new territory. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and you kind of said that really brilliantly. Um, it's, that's what John does. I mean, he's that's why he is the godfather of <laughs> Twin, Twin Peaks. Peaks. <laughs> yeah. He hates that. He, he, he loves it. Like a perfect like thesis encapsulation there. I'm wrapping my head around all that right now. And then, he does wow. that to all of us here. Yeah, he does. Oh man, I've only been. You know, it's only been thirty years of thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> I do like um, that whole thing of giant saying, uh, "Where have you gone?" and stuff like that. And I used to think, yeah. "Is that the White Lodge?" I mean, have mm. you actually been taken out of? And even with season three now, you have the idea of uh, vortexes, and that you can go to other places. And do you get the sense that those vortices like are kind of sinister, like found upon? Like, you know, I think about those. I mean, especially the scene when uh, Gordon, you know, is facing down uh, that vortex and uh, Albert kind of, you know, saves him from it. But I just remember thinking, like, I I think these are, are, are like, dangerous or, you know, illicit somehow. Hmm. I just be concerned. How do you get back out? Like, if yeah. You, Once you get in. <laughs> you get in. How do you get I mean, yeah. Like, yeah. How do you get out? Was there a was there a vortex above Andy went into the yep. woods and, yeah. and made that? Yes. So, yeah, there was. You could basically argue that one potentially, you know, depending on where you are physically on this in this realm, one vortex or a number of vortices may put you into the Dutchman's 
you know, Black Black Lodge, bad mm. place, or whatever you want to call it, versus the one which is in the woods, uh, and and Andy ends up uh, with the giant, which is, you know, perhaps arguably a good a good place. So it depends on you know which vortex you get sucked into and it's actually an interesting point because the giant does say to cooper you know where have you gone and you could almost argue that the same thing that happened to andy is happening to cooper and actually i know it's reversed uh that you know andy gets brought to the realm of the firemen and Mm. and given this information and you could say in in a way they were doing that in this opening episode of season two is that cooper had visited the realm of the firemen Uh, and of course then we called him the giant um and so the giant didn't come to him cooper went to, to the giant. I, I mean, certainly in retrospect now, we can make that argument. Right. Definitely. Right. At the very end of this episode, the giant visits Cooper again. And it's interesting. He does look like he has almost a golden sphere. He that does. He, he shoots throws, it at him. Shoots yeah. at. Very interesting yeah. to, to do a freeze frame on um, that scene where the giant is standing there. You've got the, uh, the chandelier in the room hanging down around him. You've got this interesting composition that Lynch did that it does sort of give him an otherworldly feel. Interior, one-eyed Jack's bedroom, night. Close on Audrey's eye, peering out from between the curtains, draped around the four-poster in her room. Audrey stands on the bed. There are two masks on the wall above the headboard. Ben Horn enters the room, sees movement behind the curtains. Knock, knock. Knock, knock. Changing her voice. Who's there? The big bad wolf. Go away. Interesting. Come on, let's have a look at you. I'm shy. Didn't you know? Everybody's shy. Here at One-Eyed Jacks, it's a transitory condition and an occupational handicap. He tries to pry the curtain apart for a look. She snaps it shut. He takes out a cigar. Having been through this before, he falls back on technique. But consider your first night in a new place. New surroundings? New people? New wardrobe? Naturally, you are full of questions, anxieties. You're wondering, what's expected of me? How will I be received? Will they like me? I'm right, aren't I? Yes. Ben patrols the perimeter, toying with the curtains as she moves with him, defending her translucent barrier, trying to anticipate his angle of attack. Let's examine these feelings, shall we? What are they if not the natural, emotional processes of any living, breathing person who finds herself thrust into new circumstances? Could you repeat the question? You're nervous. You're shy. You're frightened. Of course you are. How exactly new to all this are you? You might say, brand new. The thought really cheers him. Really? For instance, if I was a bar of soap, I'd still be wrapped in my package. Enthusiasm swells. All right, fine. Now I have to see you. He puts his cigar in his mouth, tries to open the curtain again. She thwarts him. He thrusts a hand inside. She slaps it away. A vixen! What's your name? Queen of Diamonds. No, no, no. Your real name. I'm not supposed to tell. Did they tell you who I was? 
the owner? That's right. Tell me your name. You wouldn't believe me. I'm a liberal thinker. Prudence. Prudence? I think you should go. Do you, Prudence? Yes, I do. I really do. All right. She listens cautiously. Ben walks to the door, opens and closes it, tiptoes back into the room, toward the bed. He triumphantly throws the curtains open. Got you! She's hiding under the covers. A conspicuous lump. Ben advances. I'll huff, and I'll puff, and I'll blow your house down! He yanks the covers away. She's revealed. A mask covers her features. Aren't you... something? He advances further. She retreats. He reaches for her. She slaps his hands away, grabs a pillow and whacks him across the head. He laughs. She's backed against the wall. He reaches for her mask. Please, I have to... see you. His hand reaches the mask. An urgent knock at the door. Ben hesitates. Another knock. Ben! It's Jer! Brother Ben! We've got a situation! So have I! Ben! It's the M-I-L-L! And we got a big S-N-A-G! Ring a bell? Alas, I do have a situation. Gee, that's too bad. All business, rising, putting on a coat. I like you. You know how to interest a man. That's half the battle. You've got quite a future in front of you. That's what everyone keeps telling me. Ben! I'm gonna count to three! Coming, Jer! Straightens his tie, checks the mirror. Prudence, I'm leaving now. But I'm going to get myself back up here to see you right away. And next time, we'll play a different game. I'll make the rules. A fun game. You'll like it. Everybody wins. He drops some money on the table, blows her a kiss, and blows out of the room. Audrey lowers the mask. She's laughing silently, tears running down her face, close to the edge. You know, in the show, Ben calls her Prudence. I think fans just think that's some weird name he made up. And you learn from the script, <laughs> that is what Audrey is calling herself. If I was a bar of soap, I'd still be wrapped in my, pa in my package. And like, oh. some, of this, some of this dialogue, I don't know if I buy it. I mean, maybe the actors would have sold it, but it's like, eh, it's a little, it's a uh, Well, it's, it's kind of sleazy. Maybe, uh, yeah. I don't know. You, you, you know, you wonder if, um, because Lynch was directing, whether it was even shot. Um, it, it's true. possible that he was just like, no, I'm not even going to do that. I, I, <laughs> right. I, it was scripted, but um, I agree. You know, and it's important to know we can we can note it a little later. There's a scene in here uh, that's in the televised version that's not in the script, and I think you know Lynch was as Lynch will do, molding it to the way he felt was. Um, you know, best suited for this for the story and for the show, and it's quite possible um, that he's just like I'm not I'm not even going to bother with that. Or as is often the case, these scenes are just a little too long, and they need to edit it down for time, so they cut you know the the introductory section of it off, and um, you know, or just shorten the exchange between Ben and Audrey. Um, hard to say, you know, what the decision making process there was, whether or not it was shot to begin with, or whether or not, uh, you know, they just edited, edited it out. Hmm. Interior, Blackie's office, night. 
Ben and Jerry enter Blackie's office. Blackie sits behind her desk, looking worn and haggard. She has the shakes. How many blips are we dealing with? Two blips. Blip number one, they contain the fire in the drying sheds. It didn't spread to the processing plant? Just the plywood building, not the main plant. Manageable. What's blip number two? Leo the lips in the hospital. As in morgue? That's a big N-O. Ben chews on that, turns to Blackie. Keep an eye on that new girl. She didn't come across. That sounds like a job for Jerry Horn. Taking off his coat, Jerry starts for the door. Ben grabs him by the collar. Blackie, you're looking a little worse for wear. She shoots him a poisonous look. He takes a packet from his pocket. Would you like to fix yourself a cocktail? Or would you rather just say no? Bastard. What's that, Blackie? Humbling herself. Please. And you used to be so pretty. Ben signals to Jerry, who exits. Ben moves to the door. Please. He stops, looks at her. She's trembling. Pretty please? Ben tosses the packet onto the desk, shakes his head and exits. Blackie looks at the packet, opens a drawer, plus other drug paraphernalia. Takes out a length of rubber tubing and sets it on the desk. You don't need two scenes like this back to back. This is a scene where Ben does say to uh, Blackie, we have a problem with this new girl. And... And we learn in another episode, Blackie says to Audrey that, you know, the owner wasn't very happy with you. And I guess you don't really need to actually witness Ben and Blackie's... Exterior. Mill. Dawn. Paramedics wheel Pete Martell out of the mill, his face covered with an oxygen mask. They load Pete into the back of an ambulance. Shelly Johnson is already inside on another gurney, also taking oxygen. Sheriff Truman stands by the ambulance doors. Pete takes Truman's hand, partially lifts off his mask. Catherine... Not yet, Pete. They look at each other. Pete coughs. They readjust his mask. Slide the gurney in. Close the doors. The siren starts up. The ambulance drives off. Truman moves away and is joined by Deputy Hawk. Josie's not at Blue Pine. She's not at the office. Keep looking. Harry, we've looked everywhere. Keep looking. Deputy Andy lopes up to them. Andy, where the hell is Cooper? It's the strangest thing. I was talking to him, and he put the phone down and walked away, and it sounded like somebody was banging real loud on the door. And? And then I heard a sound like somebody falling down, and then about a minute went by, and somebody hung up the phone. Hawk and Truman look at each other. That's Schaefer, though. How many how many characters does he play here? He plays Hawk, Truman, Andy. I mean, like that is unbelievable. And I have to say, uh, the the Truman... He really gives Truman some oomph. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I mean, you, again, this is a scene you don't need, but it's interesting to see that uh, this is what Andy does when uh, he gets off the phone with Cooper. He's like, I don't know. He just <laughs> he heard a thump and he hung up and like he's confused by the whole thing. It's like, you didn't realize it was a gunshot? I, yeah. I mean, this is Andy, you know. I mean, those editing choices are made because um, they have to. They have to fit those commercials in. It has to be this length. A lot of times, I think the the, the TV writers uh, today and certainly then wrote with some redundancy there. We have a little extra and we can cut it if we need to. So they had some room to play to make it, you know, make a scene a little longer or a little shorter and not take the essential content uh, of it out so that they could they could make that exact time that they needed 
to do. I'm sure Frost was extremely aware of that kind of thing when they're scripting these, uh, and certainly Harley Payton. Mm. Um, you know, they knew we have to give ourselves a little wiggle room. So some of these scenes run a little long and we know we can cut them down and still keep the content exactly what we want. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. John, did you have anything to say about Leland and his hair, hair turning white? Well, I think, you know, by the time they got to shooting this episode, they had committed, at least Lynch and Frost, uh, and I don't know how many other people knew. We all know it's very few. Um, they had committed to Leland being essentially, uh, he was going to be the killer. And so, you know, they had laid the groundwork. They knew how it was going to play out uh, until the reveal uh, that Leland was going to be revealed as Bob. And so this is just the first clue and, you know, positioning of Leland as this character. We can assemble these clues as we go along. And um, so something, you know, odd has transformed in Leland is sort of a hint that uh, he's not you know, what he appears to be. So I think mm. I think that was the intent there was to um, essentially they wanted to make it look like Leland was having a nervous breakdown or he was changing. He was he was, you know, having these issues. But it was all part of this other you know, subplot that was going to get revealed that he was in fact possessed by some other demonic force and that contributed to why he was looking and behaving the way he was. Mm-hmm. Does anybody think that Leland looked almost more aged when he had the, the shock of white hair than he did in his reappearance in season three? Like he, he, he was older when his hair went like completely white than he actually looked for me in the return. Yeah, I can agree with that. I can see that. That I mean, the white hair makes you look old. And in the return, he didn't have the white hair, right? No. Right. Which he also is... didn't have it. I mean, when in the finale, though, in episode 29, did he, he didn't have white hair either, right? He was back to his brownish hair. Yeah, he didn't. That's right. Yeah. Uh-huh. He, he, you know, well, that, I think that just Ray Wise has those features, which, um, you know, 25 years, he still looks... He in some way ageless. It's yeah. hard to really pin an age on on Ray Wise. He uh, he's just got that wonderful face um, that yeah, doesn't age. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a, a great thing to have, I guess. Interior hospital room day. Truman looks in on Ed Hurley sitting by the bedside of the unconscious Nadine, holding her hand, watching her with fear and devotion, trying to will her back. Truman respectfully withdraws before Ed realizes he's there. Truman enters another room, where a nurse is tending to Shelley, lying quietly in bed, pale, exhausted, coughing gently every now and then. Truman nods to the nurse, who exits. Truman sits by the edge of the bed. Shelley manages a weak smile. Hi, Shelley. Hi. Hope you don't mind if I don't get you coffee. (coughs) Starts to cough. He pats her arm. Leo, know I'm here? Shelley sees the look on his face. What? What? Leo was shot last night. He's here in the hospital. Oh my god. It's bad. You should know there's a chance he may not make it. Oh my god. What happened? We don't know. We found him at your house about an hour ago. At our house? Truman nods. Shelley's thinking. Eyes darting around, exploring the possibilities. Shelley, we're gonna need to ask you some questions. She nods. Can you tell me what you were doing at the mill? Tears come to Shelley's eyes. Would it be okay if maybe we could talk a little later? It's just, you know, with Leo. She starts to cry, 
Truman pats her on the shoulder. I understand. You rest up for a while. I'll be back to see you. Thanks, Sheriff. Truman rises, exits. Shelley tries to put the pieces together, under her breath, terrified. Bobby! Bobby! Help me! Interior. Hospital corridor. Day. Truman exits Shelley's room, sees Ed coming out of Nadine's room. They approach. Ed shrugs, a heartbreaking look of helplessness. Truman gives him a hug. I'm sorry. She's always been a fighter. I'm betting on her. I'd lay money on that myself. I should have been with her. This wouldn't have happened. You can't blame yourself. But I do, you see. That's the whole problem. Pulling himself back. Have you seen James? He ought to know. I've been trying to get a hold of him. Truman decides not to complicate Ed's emotional state. Let me take care of that for you. Thanks, Harry. Emotions swelling again. She knows I'm there. She squeezes my hand when I talk to her. She can hear me. Course she can, Ed. You stay with her. You'll bring her back. Ed pats him on the back, nods, goes back in as Truman moves off. The Shelly thing is weird because I don't even think she's, she's not even met up with Bobby yet to come up with a scheme to, to basically fake that she still loves Leo to, like, that whole scheme, they're not even there yet. So no. I don't, it's funny how, like, she still seems to be pretending that she is sad for Leo. The reason she's in the hospital is because Leo tied her up and left her for dead in the mill. Right. So it's like, if they were able to figure out that Leo was the one that did the mill, wouldn't they be like, Shelly, why aren't you more upset that he tried to kill you? I mean, so right, the whole thing right. doesn't quite make much sense, really. Yep. Interior, Palmer living room, day. Sarah Palmer and Maddie Ferguson are having coffee, both lost in private thought. I had the strangest dream last night. About Laura? I'm not sure. Maybe. I was in a desert. It was hot and dry. There was some kind of animal with me. I couldn't see it, but I could feel it breathing on me. What kind of animal? A big cat. I think it was gray. I could see its eyes, yellow and red. Then we were in the woods. It was very dark. I woke up and the window was open. There was a cold wind blowing through the room. With this unseen dialogue, it, I feel it's even more clear that Bob is going after Maddie. Like, I think yeah. more clear, and maybe they decided they didn't want the audience to start thinking about Bob attacking her. Maybe they wanted to keep it more secret and, you know, just surprise us with her death. But it seems, I mean, she's clearly saying the window's open and the, and the blowing of the room. And so it seems to me that maybe, maybe while she's sleeping, Bob is like standing over her or something. And when I say Bob Leland, I mean. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and, but this whole big cat thing is kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, I, I don't know if it's like a metaphor for, Something that's bad, that's evil, that's um, scary. So one of the next scenes uh, in the show is that, you know we're at Leo's uh, house and they're looking. For, I think they're looking for evidence. And uh, you have you have Andy hitting his uh, with the plywood, and then Albert coming in. And it's a, I think it's a really funny scene. This scene just like it's a lesson in how to make something awkward by extending. It. Yeah. You know, and that's a big part of uh, David's repertoire, I think. It's also why his stuff is just so 
unspeakably beautiful as well. But after about 10 seconds of seeing this, I don't know if you had a reaction similar to the one that I had, but I, I started getting like nervy a, a little bit. Like I did, I started to feel antsy. Yeah. I mean, I think Lynch can do that. <laughs> yes, yeah, feel bad for Andy because he's like dancing around. He's got blood coming off his his nose. I think yeah. the blood is in like a dead down. squat position too. You know, yes. so I mean, can you imagine how hard that must be to like walk for however long? And you know, David's you know getting like, I'm sure he didn't just shoot that once. You know, yeah, so, maybe he did. He'd be like, he's. Known for one takes too. I can you know? see, I can see lunch going lower, walk lower, yeah. Yeah. longer. It's like, no, get low to the ground. Yeah. You know, like that. <laughs> Sacrifice the body. Yeah. <laughs> Interior, double R diner, kitchen, day. A small bottle of ammonia or some light chemical is opened. Hank Jennings lets the fumes from the bottle drift up into his face. He inhales. His eyes redden and start to tear. He replaces the bottle top and hides the bottle as Norma Jennings enters the kitchen. She's not in uniform this morning. Hank lets her catch a glimpse of him before turning away. Hank? Hank grabs a broom and starts to sweep up, trying to hide his tears. Yeah, hi. What is it? Nothing. Fine. She regards him. Trust still an issue, but today perhaps slightly more on the fence, waiting him out. Uh Uh-huh. I can't stop thinking of little Shelly in that burning mill. And then as if that's not bad enough, she comes out of it to find Leo's been shot? I don't know. I mean, I've done some rotten things in my life. I don't pretend to be any saint. I've paid for it. But why do bad things happen to good people? It just doesn't seem fair. Tries to lighten up. Anyway. I'm just on my way over to see her. Yeah, listen. I was going to send her some flowers. Takes out some cash. Maybe you could... She takes the money. That's a nice thought. Sometimes I guess it is the thought that counts. She'll get through this. She's tougher than she looks. Yeah. Kinda reminds me of somebody. A wistful grin for her benefit. She half smiles, pockets the money, starts out. She likes snapdragons. He, he's trying to build an alibi with Norma to be like, yes. I had nothing to do with this. My hands are clean. Look at the tears in my eye. I'm sincere. But he, we know he's none of that. I always think it's interesting. I, this, is, and this isn't another episode where he just takes money out of the register. It's like, yeah, we should make this place look really nice. It's like, it's not your money. This is Norma's uh, restaurant. And she's yeah, got to pay. She's got to figure out how to pay the bills. And it's so nice of you to just say, let's take out some money. <laughs> he, you're right. He just takes the money out willy nilly. She doesn't stop him. It's her place. Right. They are married, though. I guess technically they are married, aren't they? They are still married. But it's still his, her place. Yeah. John, what is that? What's a scene that you really enjoy in this episode? Because there's so much happening. I mean, I, mean, I, love, I love it because it's directed by Lynch. Um, Amen. Um, if I were going to comment on the episode overall, um, obviously this episode is, is – we talked about the supernatural element earlier. Um, but this episode – you know, it was sort of a, a reset in many respects. I mean, they yeah. had a plot line that they had they had done in the first season, but now they had to kind of, you know, start over again, so to speak, because they, they were hoping that this would continue on through this a full season two and maybe beyond. And so you see the beginnings of what will be a, a season-long arc, the idea 
when Cooper's at the beginning and he's laying in, on the floor and he's talking to Diane and he's saying, I, you know, I have to keep the fear mm. from, you know, you know, getting in. I mean, that, that essentially right there at the very beginning, in the very first scene, the entire theme of season two is laid out, which is fear versus love. Uh, Major Briggs much later in the season say, you know, my greatest fear is that love is not enough. Mm. Um, fear and love open the doors, which is what we're going to find out much later. You, that love will open the door to the White Lodge and fear opens the door to the Black Lodge. That kernel of the entire storyline is laid out in the first five minutes of this episode. And they were kind of laying the groundwork for a season-long arc. And as a result of that, too, we get essentially the biggest mistake, the biggest error of the entire Twin Peaks narrative, the original series, in this episode. As they have to redefine the story, they tell us you know about the blood types uh yeah. of the you know the, the blood that they found on the note was a b negative they had established that Jacques renault's blood type was a b negative mm. in the first season and then in this episode they established that you know that blood was you know firewalk with me was written in the blood and it was type a b negative and none of the people have, you know, Jock doesn't have it and Leland doesn't have it or whatever. I, I, well, I, maybe Leland does. That's a huge mistake. They, they essentially forgot what they had established in season one. And it may seem like a really minor thing, so what, overlooking it. Well, essentially, <laughs> it basically says, well, Jock's the, Jock's the murderer right. by doing that. Um, and it, it also is curious because the show is so meticulously made that a, yeah. an error like that really stands out, especially when you look at what happened in the first season where everything seemed so carefully uh, constructed. This error was, I remember that watching that when it came on, just going, wait a minute, what? I mean, <laughs> this is a whole different reality now. Right. <laughs> this, is a, this isn't what we do. There are a couple of other examples, I think, of the restructuring happening in this two-hour premiere. Essentially, and in some ways, I think they were, were saying, if you didn't see season one, you can start here. We're going to lay the entire story out for you. We're going to put the new clues in. We're going to kind of point it in a different direction. And you can start watching from now on and, and, and be part of the audience. So mm. there's a lot of heavy lifting going on in this episode to prepare the story for season two. Yeah. yeah. It is funny they kind of restructure, but they really didn't restructure it well for new people. Like if I went in and be like, there's some waiter and all of a sudden there's a giant in the room. <laughs> and, like, what? and we're all these other characters. And it's like they're. But they, back they, then you couldn't go back to watch season one. So right, they're letting no, a new audience I know, in some but it weird was, way. Good, maybe it's not the best introduction. Richie, I mean, I, one of the scenes I really liked, I wondered if you thought about it, too, is like there's there's a great scene at the double R where uh, Major Briggs is talking to his son Bobby and like what do you oh. think about that that's one of my favorite scenes the scene that he had a dream and then yeah. I think that he went to I think it was a white house and he opened the door and there was his son right his there. son smiling yeah. with like you know uh, looking contented and satisfied yeah. and, you know I love that scene because I love how it unmanned Bobby like in that moment you know it's yeah. just like it's, he's perpetually going to be a little boy, you know, with his daddy. But which, but you know what that scene did for me? Is it humanized the major to mm. such a degree that when I saw him reappear in episode two, 
of uh, the return, just for that quick moment when he mm. says "blue rose." Yeah, there was something really elegaic about it, and you know, just very funereal. I mean, like, yeah, like that. It, it really affected me, you know. And then it showed um, Mr. C imprisoned. Yeah. You see uh, the major's head for a moment, you know, before it makes its ascension, I guess. But I found that to be, you know, just far more ethereal than it would have been had it not, had both those moments not been informed by the double R diner heart to heart. You know, he's seeing the future of Bobby and it's, it's, he's got a good future. He's got a happy future. And, and then we see that future in, in season three. Yeah. And when his mom lets everybody in right. with the Mrs. chair, Briggs, Mrs. Yeah. Briggs. And she talks to Bobby about their, you know. Right, he's like, you weren't ready for this, but you've become such a better man now. And now you're ready to hear about what, basically what your father left you in some ways, a message. He goes full circle there. It's so beautiful, yeah. Yeah, it is. That uh, th- that entire story arc is just such a priceless one. Yeah, yeah, obviously, yeah, they were trying to establish Major Briggs as a, a more complicated character than they had in season one, where he was sort of just sort of a hard-nosed uh, authoritarian type figure. Um, they wanted to open him up, and they certainly do here in this scene and in, in later episodes too. Um, uh, there's a couple of interesting things to note. Um, one is, you know, just as we were talking about, you guys were talking about a moment ago that scene really does inform a lot of what happens in season three um Mm. you know we see bobby as a sheriff's deputy and apparently um in a better place even though he's had some hardships and some hurt in his life he has obviously found a secure place in life and he's on the side of quote unquote good and that's all that seed is planted here in in the season two premiere. The other thing that's interesting to note, I interviewed Dana Ashbrook a long, long time ago, and um, he had indicated that the, the intent of the scene might have been different originally, that Bobby was going to um, react, uh, you know, kind of um, snidely and kind mm. of uh, dismissively toward, toward his father. Uh, and he uh, Lynch, you basically told him, no, you're going to take this to heart. This is really going to move you. And in fact, it does. I mean, and, and Dan Ashworth's performance in the scene is great. And it softens the character and it enhances the character of Bobby, too, who will throughout season two begin to become a more nuanced character and start to shift his life toward a better path. I mean, if you think about what Bobby's been through up to this point, he's killed a guy, he's been dealing drugs, <laughs> he's mm. a pretty bad guy. This is the moment where he he changes, I think, and becomes a better person, and it stays in that direction. And Lynch knew that then. I think, you know, he understood that that's what needed to happen with, with Bobby. It is in a very important scene, and it is one of the most moving scenes in in all of Twin Peaks, it is a standout scene in this episode. In the interview with Dana, he basically says, I think Mark Frost told him to play it one way, yes. and then David Lynch yeah. told him to tell, play it a different way. Yeah. Oh, geez. Is that your, it was that, that was from our interview. Yeah, yeah. but like, isn't that yeah. interesting in a way that like, Mark Frost had a whole different way of going about it. 
And then you have the director who basically says, no, 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 that's not how you should be acting, and you're going to be right. emotional. Frost, you know, I mean, he wasn't directing it. He was writing it, and and, um, and so he didn't really quite maybe perceive how it w- would all play out. Um, you know, to Mark Frost's credit, he has acknowledged that scene as being one of his favorite scenes in mm. Twin Peaks. So he recognizes the power of it as well, even though initially he may have um, – you know, he may have seen it playing out a different way. 30 years ago, people across the country were glued to their televisions by this mysterious death of Laura Palmer. And this spring, April 3rd through 5th, Twin Peaks fans can travel to Elvis Presley's Graceland in Memphis, Tennessee for a once in a lifetime fan celebration. David Lynch and Mark Frost created a mystery horror drama series that has continued to amass a cult following even after its original series final in 1991. And its impact on pop culture is never ending. The Twin Peaks 30th official fan celebration at Graceland, an unforgettable experience featuring Twin Peaks themed parties, screenings of fan favorite episodes, and the chance for fans to relive their favorite show moments with some of Twin Peaks biggest stars. And of course, there will be tons of cherry pie and damn good coffee. Tickets for the 30th anniversary celebration are still on sale. And fans can visit www.graceland.com forward slash Twin Peaks for more information. Interior, one-eyed Jack's bedroom, day. Audrey, alone in her room, sprawled on the bed playing solitaire. She hums. She cheats. A knock at the door. A 52 pickup girl enters. Say, when do they put on the feed bag around here? I could eat a bear. Kitchen's open 24 hours a day. Yeah? My door isn't. There's no doorknob on my side. That's for security. Whose security? All the new girls get this room first. This is interesting. All of them? Until they trust you. Then what happens? The girl likes her and is friendly, but is also clearly operating under some other instructions. Keep asking so many questions and you'll never find out. They don't like you asking questions? The girl gestures to be quiet, nods, points to a small screen in the wall, a speaker. Audrey nods, understanding. I wouldn't normally be so curious, but Jax is such a first-rate joint. I'd like to know more about how it's run. This may be your chance to find out. Blackie would like to see you in her office. Hey, great. What's your name? Nancy. Nancy, one more question. Don't your boobs start to hurt in this thing? pulls on her own bustier. Nancy covers her mouth to hide her laugh and nods. Interior, Blackie's office, day. Audrey enters. Blackie, fixed up, looking cool and steely, is getting a shoulder rub from one of the pickups. Another pickup is kneeling in front of her, rubbing her feet. Hey boss, what's up? Let's that pass. The owner was a little disappointed in your performance last night. Oh? That's not what he told me. He said you were withholding. Okay. Right away, here's my analysis of the guy. He's a big cheese. Girls are falling like ripe tomatoes every time he walks into a room. Hey, a steady diet of caviar would eventually kill you, right? I asked myself, what's this guy missing? Conquest. The thrill of victory. So you turned tail and made him chase you? So to speak. You know the guy, am I right? Coolly assesses her, then. Did you find him attractive? Attractive? 
Yes, I wouldn't say he was my type exactly. Blackie rises and insinuates her way right up to Audrey. She touches Audrey's cheek. And who would you say is your type exactly? Not you. (laughs) No offense. Blackie slaps her hard. Audrey raises her hand to slap back. Blackie catches her wrist. Let's get one thing straight between us, princess. Not flinching. Okay. Audrey hears the snick of a lock engaging. She looks down. Blackie's put a handcuff on her wrist. When you work for me, everybody's your type. Whether you like it or not. They look at each other. And Francine and CD, they're wonderful. They're doing a great job with the yes. characters and stuff. I love it. Yeah. This script kind of introduces Nancy, who ends up being uh, Blackie's sister. But um, she's introduced differently in the show. And it's interesting that she's a pickup girl in the in the script here. So I think they're still trying to figure out who Nancy's going to be. Yeah, it'd be interesting if Nancy became a character that tried to... Like, if we didn't go down the path of Audrey getting rescued by the boys, it would have been interesting if this Nancy girl tried to get Audrey out. Mm. Like, befriended her, and Audrey uh, befriends her, tells her who she is, and maybe she learns the truth... Well, she kind of knows the truth anyway, but gets confirmed with Nancy, and Nancy's like, I can try to get you out of here. And maybe have a breakout. That would be interesting. Interior, sheriff's station, day. Cooper, shirt off, ribs heavily taped, sits on the conference table as Albert Rosenfield examines him using a stethoscope. Albert's briefcase is open on the table. Agent Cooper, you wanted to see me? Have a seat, Andy. Andy sits. Albert packs up his briefcase. Andy, I wanted to have a brief chat about the events of yesterday. Okay. When an officer's involved in something like this, it can result in a great number of distractions in the workplace. Uh Uh-huh. The thing to focus on is your daily routine. Cling to it. Let it become the tentpole around which you organize your waking life. Hanging on every word. Okay. The job can provide the structure you need to survive, while body and mind are left free to heal the wounds our work occasionally, inevitably, inflicts. Starting to look confused. All right. Even if committed in the line of duty and in a timely and heroic fashion, the firing of our weapon, the shooting of another human being, no matter how villainous the individual may be, exacts a spiritual and emotional toll on the officer. Sees the light. Oh, clearing up the misunderstanding. I thought you were talking about me and Lucy. Cooper looks at him. At the door. Albert looks at Andy. Back at Cooper. Albert exits. Where do they keep his water dish? Albert exits past Lucy at the coffee station. Welcome back. Takes her coffee cup. For me, you shouldn't have. Some classic Andy and some Albert. And Cooper. I mean, I love the, I like the whole dialogue of Cooper. And then Andy's like thinking he's talking about Lucy, um, which is even funny. I mean, it's always the comical with Andy and Lucy, right? There's always some kind of confusion on something. And uh, I have to say, uh, Schaefer, Dark Lord, does an amazing Andy. To witness him in uniform at the pink room burlesque, it's great. It's so good. Yeah, and then the fact that he just did all the guys' voices in that little bit is just pretty awesome. It is something else. Interior, interrogation room, day. James Hurley sits across from Sheriff Truman. Uncle Ed know I'm in here? I haven't told him yet. Nadine took an overdose of pills last night. She's in the hospital. Ed's with her. I didn't want to tell him about this. She gonna be alright? They don't know yet. Poor Nadine. James, if there's anything else you want to tell me, this would be a good time. Thinks. Nods. 
Laura talks on her tape about a mystery man. The Red Corvette. Leo Johnson. I think it's somebody else. Not Jacques Renault either. Who? I never put it together until I heard the tape where she said this guy can really light my fire. She said something once about a friend of her father's. Somebody she'd known since she was a kid. She said this guy was really into fire. What did she mean by that? I don't know. Laura said a lot of nutty stuff. Most of the time it went right by you. Boy, that James Hurley. <laughs> Always getting himself into trouble. I actually hate this in a lot of shows. They kind of just like are recapping what's happening around, on, around the show or something like that. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, that so-and-so is... I've seen some shows that drive me crazy where the whole show is almost... The, just people saying, I just saw so-and-so, they're doing this. And then somebody else would go there, I saw so-and-so, they're doing this. And it's just like, I don't need all that. Just get that's, into the story. That's it's bad like, writing. Yeah, it's bad writing yeah. and stuff. So we, I don't think we need to say like, oh, what's going on with Nadine? It's like, well, we, we've we witnessed it. We've seen in the hospital. We know she's got an o- overdose. Yeah. Storytelling, the best storytelling is show me, don't tell me. Yep. And I think it was good they got rid of this scene, even though you get to hear... James. No, no, this scene wasn't good. I don't know why I even said that. It's not a good scene at all. You wanted more James. Is that what you're That's, saying? I was not saying that. Interior, hospital room, day. Cooper and Truman enter. Dr. Jacoby is lying in bed, hooked up to various monitors, but sitting up, rested, alert. Doc Hayward is seated by his bedside. He rises. Cooper takes his seat. Jacoby notices Cooper moving slowly. Oh. What happened to you? I'll see about some coffee. Thanks, Doc. Cooper and Truman take seats beside Jacoby's bed. Dr. Jacoby, I know you've been through quite a bit in the last 24 hours. So have I. I don't want to pussyfoot around with you anymore, or see any more magic tricks, or hear any more psychological mumbo-jumbo. I want you to tell me how you came into possession of this. Cooper reveals the half-a-heart necklace. Jacoby is saddened seeing it, holds it gently in his hands. Shall I start at the beginning? That's as good a place as any. Laura started coming to see me nine months ago, on her own. Picked my name out of the phone book. I thought, what in the world could be troubling such a bright, pretty girl? And Laura was, in essence, living a double life. Two people, self-divided. And those two selves were literally at war. A war of attrition. And the part of her that was good and loving was gradually losing ground. Why? Because the other self was stronger. The last time I saw her, two days before her death, it seemed to me she had reached a kind of peace within herself. I now believe what she had in fact arrived at was a decision to end her life. Suicide? She didn't kill herself. No, she allowed herself to be killed. I don't understand. She had reached a point where her good self believed that death was the only way to prevent the other side from complete domination. Death, in this sense, represented a kind of victory. Good lord. Cooper, alert, moving him along. The necklace. As I told you, the night after she died, I followed a man in a red corvette. Leo Johnson. Correct. He eluded me near the old sawmill road. As I sat there, cursing my lack of horsepower, A motorcycle drove by, James and Donna, which I discovered after following them, on foot, into the woods. They spoke intently for a while. I couldn't hear them. Then they buried something in the ground and drove away. Unable to quench my curiosity, I dug down and found the necklace. 
I had seen it around Laura's neck many times. Perhaps ill-advisedly, I took it as a keepsake. Tears in his eyes, looking at the necklace in his hand. This was her, you see. The necklace. A divided heart. So, a lot of this was in the show. Yeah. But I do like this idea of the, the, the divided heart. Jacoby is trying to say that, like, she was she was at war with herself. Mm-hmm. That there was a good side of her and there was a bad side of her. And, and the bad side of her was winning. Yeah. And this episode, there was so much going on. There was no time. Like they, they, you had to move quicker than this. You didn't have time to just hang out with Jacoby and him explain everything <laughs> to you. Yeah, Schaefer. Schaefer. He, he nails it again. I love how his Truman sounds like Batman. <laughs> I'm Batman. Yeah, he says very. Truman's very Batman. I'm Truman. I'm Truman. Interior: Palmer House. Night. Sarah and Leland are dressed for an evening out. Leland is deftly spinning Sarah around the room with a few light dance steps humming some public domain tune. Sarah is smiling and enjoying it in spite of herself. Maddie and Donna watch from the doorway to the room. Leland finishes the dance. Come on, doll, let's paint the town. Sarah, not complaining. Leland, I don't know what's gotten into you. That old black magic's got me in its spell. Something has, that much is for sure. Girls, you should have seen Sarah dance. We used to win all the dance contests down at the Grange Hall. The other couples would see us coming and just walk off the floor. Leland. It's true. Isn't it true? We won't be late. Say hi to the Haywards for me. I'll probably see you over there. Leland gives Maddie a kiss, dances Sarah through the archway toward the front door, humming another tune. Donna, breaking out the smokes. I half expected him to start dancing up the walls like Fred Astaire. It's nice to see them enjoying themselves. Donna pulls out a list. They sit on the sofa. So, listen. I got hold of the list of Meals on Wheels clients that Laura used to visit. It used to be nine. Now it's eight since old Mr. Pendergast died. What are you going to do? I told Norma I'd take over the deliveries tomorrow. I'll spend some time with everybody on her route. She unfolds a small town map. I put X's on all the addresses. One of these eight people must have sent me that note. It means they know something. We just have to figure out who it was. As Donna concentrates over her map, Maddie feels an odd, disquieting feeling coming over her. She tries to shake it off. Can't. Sound of Donna's voice grows fainter. Laura never talked much about them. Guess we know by now that doesn't necessarily mean there wasn't anything weird about them. Maddie turns slowly and looks into the alcove of the living room. Standing there, stock still, is Bob, the gray-haired man we've seen in Cooper's dream and Mrs. Palmer's vision. Maddie's frozen with fear. Donna doesn't immediately notice. Maddie starts to tremble, unable to speak. Bob doesn't move. He just looks at her. Donna finally notices her distress. Maddie? Maddie? Huh? What is it? What's wrong? Maddie just looks at her, looks back. Bob is gone. Reading the performance indications that are given to Leland's character is 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 very fascinating and then we're kind of remembering how he pulled moments like this off or like similar moments you know like where he's dancing uh you know like whether it's sarah that he's dancing with or he's becoming like progressively more and more frenetic and more and more like a whirly gig um it's interesting just to see how in the script it, it, it was written in such a way these guys would just say the right words to Ray Wise, and that, like knowing that he would carry it out, like it, it, that's patently obvious by now. Right. I mean, he's the creepiest and most heartbreaking character in that show. 
this whole Leland and Sarah going dancing makes me think of Firewalk with Me, where uh, Donna Hayward comes to Laura's house and she's like, "Oh, where's your parents? Oh, uh, uh, Fred and Ginger are out," oh, which is like they're gone dancing. So there mm-hmm. is a pattern of them going out dancing, and of course Leland likes to dance. So I mean, not needed, no. but. Yeah. It's still kind of cool. I mean, it's kind of neat that this is something that the writers have thought about before. Just you and me. There is no just... Just you and me. There's no James there. He's not playing the guitar. Yeah, so that, was, that must have been added in. That was, I mean, this. so this is a David Lynch episode, so I'm sure David Lynch was kind of like, you know what would be cool? <laughs> James sitting there <sighs> singing to Sing. the girls. Yeah, I mean... And <laughs> I mean, I, I think... It's know, way more frightening at the end. Yeah. That was, a, that's like more a jump scare, the right. way it's presented. Not even that scary. Kind of like Friday the 13th-ish. Yes. Where he, the killer's standing there, and then you look and he's gone, like he's a cartoon character. I like the way it presented itself on television. Is there anything else we want to talk about this episode? I mean, I guess near the end we get to be at uh, the Haywards, and we learn that uh, Donna has another sister. Alicia Witt. Alicia Witt, who was in season three. The sister playing the piano. It and- brings you in with a calmness, and then it gets really disturbing. Yes. Um, yeah. That's what Lynch does a lot. It's really kind of an important scene. You know, I didn't realize it till much, much later. I don't even think I acknowledged it when we were doing our episode guides and stuff in, in Wrapped in Plastic. The scene was scripted differently. You know, Lynch came in and he added the Gersten Hayward character mm-hmm. into the scene. It wasn't ever going to be part of it. It was a brand new thing and, that Lynch brought in. And I, obviously he had, you know, he had worked with, with Felicia Witt before in Dune mm. and knew what her talents were. Uh, and so he wanted, you know, to have her participate in Twin Peaks. So he he basically created this role, on, I think, on the spot, essentially, for her. And there's a couple of interesting things that happen. One is the poem that she reads, which is all about Laura Palmer. And that is critical, too, because it's here that, that Lynch is sort of reintroducing the spirit of Laura into the story. Mm. And, you know, it's something that Lynch never can quite shake he wants to explore this character more obviously he makes an entire film about her essentially a year later this is where he is bringing her essence essentially back to to the story and it was never again it was never part of the original script i don't think frost was thinking that way but lynch certainly was and he wanted to have laura there again and so he has gersten recite this poem it was laura um, it's an actually interesting poem, and if you just look at the poem by itself um, and read the the lines of it, it, it's a pretty good poem, actually. And and he also has her dressed for some bizarre reason. He has Kirsten dressed with a almost like a princess. She's got a wand yeah. with a star at the end, and she's got the tiara on, and she's got this dress. I think she says, "Oh, I was I'm you know practicing for the play at school or whatever." I forget exactly. I think that's what excuses for her to be dressed like that. But it's striking that she's dressed very similarly to Cheryl Lee as the Good Witch. As the Good Witch. Yeah. Which, you know, Lynch had essentially just finished making Wild at Heart, and then he went in this. So that imagery was really strong with him, and he almost puts that character back in 
to the story here with through Gersten. In some ways, I theorize it would be fun to write, and I, I really don't mean to go way off on a tangent here, that Gersten's an imaginary character that no one sees. <laughs> you know, she's never there. You know, obviously, she comes back in season three. But you know, for that brief moment, she sort of appears. She's sort of a fantastical character. She appears yeah. with a poem and plays a little song, and it's so typically Lynchian that he would throw that in there. But obviously, he wanted to reestablish Laura's presence, and he did it in that way. I, I think the whole scene is really fascinating. Mm, it is. It yeah. is. Absolutely. I love that this episode ends with her playing the piano, too, Like, because most yeah. of the episodes don't end that way. I mean, most of Laura's the, picture, yeah, generally. Generally. I mean, there's a few here and there that, that yeah. end differently, but I thought it was fun that it ended with her playing the piano. She's super gifted, too, and I'm saying that as a pianist. Uh, like she's actually playing those pieces, and, and uh, especially when she plays the Rondo Capriccioso by Mendelssohn. That's yeah, not an easy piece. Alicia Witt was, yeah, an actually an accomplished piano player, and at a very, very young age, I mean, she had, you know, she was an accomplished performer, which is part of why she was cast hmm. um, as, a, as a very young, young actor. I don't know how old she was in Dune in 1984, which would have been shooting in like 1983 was she she's, alia yes she's alia exactly and okay, she wow. was at that young age capable of memorizing her lines and and giving a performance because she uh, essentially was like a, like a child prodigy or whatever could play the piano and sing yeah, and do sure. all those things yeah. and so yeah you know, lynch was very aware of that and that's uh, he wanted to he wanted to feature her again in Twin Peaks. Um, it's unfortunate we didn't get to see something else happen with her. Oh, I know. Season three, she has a very tragic outcome, ultimately. Do you think and she so, died at the end? I mean, like, we, we don't she know. Doesn't, well, we don't really know what happens to Gerson. Right. The last time we see her in season three is she's behind the tree. She hears mm. the gunshot. Stephen probably killing himself mm. and then she is just distraught and and beside herself in stress and i think that's the last time we see her i don't think we yeah, see her again is, yeah the, the thing about this episode is there's so much expository dialogue in it because mm. they really are trying to catch everyone back up if they hadn't seen it you know in four months especially the scene where albert has to lay the whole case out yes um, you know, we uh, we interviewed Miguel Ferrer about that, and he said that was one of the hardest things he had to do was, you know, t to just have these pages and pages of dialogue where he basically recaps the entire first season for everyone <laughs> and where it's going to go. But there's a lot of that in this episode. There's a lot of, you know, attempting to kind of get people to talk about what happened so they can get all the facts out there. Mm. I think a lot of that they ended up, you know, cutting. It would just have been more expository dialogue. Yeah, you know the very end of the episode. Ronette is laying in the bed, and her arms lift up as she is kind of reliving the um, the murder. I scene. love that scene. Yeah, all of that is is fantastic. Really, that's like a transcendent moment. Yeah, it, it, it's it's really good. John, you know more than I do, but like I think this was being promoted as this is the episode you'll learn more about who who the killer is, and I guess it ends with. I guess us seeing Bob killing Laura. I mean, right. some people said was could he be uh, could he be saving her? I remember I remember hearing somewhere where they thought maybe he was giving CPR or something, but there's no way. What? Who would think Bob's saving her? That's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Well, Bob's saving anyone here. <laughs> there was a couple things that were happening at the time, and there was apparently. I forget if it was Lynch Frost that said this or if ABC said this, but they said you know, obviously. 
over the summer of 1990, the question was, who killed Laura Palmer? Mm. And we thought we were going to find out at the end of season one, and we didn't. And so there was some expectation that we were going to find out in the season two premiere. We were going to finally find out who killed Laura Palmer. And I think there was some coy kind of, yes, we're going to show you who killed Laura Palmer. In the, and they do. They show us <laughs> that Bob killed Laura Palmer. And again, as I said earlier, the new question became, well, who is Bob? Bob killed Laura Palmer, but the fact is, Bob is someone else. The three have seen him, yes, but not his body. And so mm-hmm. that, was, that, was, that was the new mystery. And so they kind of pulled the rug out in a way. You know, it was like, well, yeah, we told you who killed her, but we didn't really tell you who right. he, really, he, he is. And, so, and yes, that scene was interpreted in different ways at the time. And if you wow. didn't have the context of the rest of the show to watch, when Bob kills her, he kind of looks up and he cries and screams. And, and, and there was some interpretation by some critics at the time that he was, he was agonizing over what he had done. And, of course, there could be an element of truth to that, too, once you find out that Bob is Leland. Paul Walkenby establishes they did not want to kill Laura Palmer. They wanted Bob wanted to possess Laura Palmer. And so in killing her, she had essentially defeated him. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of complexity there. But that last scene of Bob uh, at the time had people really confused and wondering wow. and try, maybe reading too much into it. You know, Frank Silva, who was not an actor, really did a great job in that scene yeah and in retrospect we know he was agonizing because it was leland so well it's complicated yeah so the tears you know leland we know had it is complicated but seeing that imagery before you know the whole mystery i guess i could i could put myself in a position of seeing that for the first time and not understanding it as someone who watched this five years ago and saw it for the first time i just thought bob is the killer that's him killing her. It's hard to remember back then when I first saw it. Mm. I can, you know, actually, the more I think about it, I think he was called Killer Bob. Like, even back, I think even when this show premiered, I think, like, no, I guess the pick cards hadn't come out yet. Right, John? I'm yeah, trying to, yeah I, he wasn't. I don't think he was called Killer Bob at that point. Okay. I mean, in fact, this episode is really the episode where Bob gets introduced as a major player yeah in the story there was some confusion after this you know who is bob really? right mm-hmm. we saw bob in a dream and we saw a vision from sarah and it was always a kind of a weird like who is this guy and we have a sketch yeah. that is the, ske- the sketch is his well, sketch hasn't come in yet right? oh yeah, yeah that's we true got, we're getting there we have a sketch yeah Richard, do you have anything else to say about this episode? Oh, no, I'm just uh, kind of reliving it. Uh, <laughs> I did. I forgot what a slow burn this episode is. Like, the, the slowest of burns. Yeah. Mm. Such a masterwork. But I really want to thank everybody for having me tonight. Awesome. Thank you, John. And thank you. Thank you to Richie English. And all these players did a fabulous job for this one. Um, amazing. I loved it all. Yes, thank you so much, Francine and Sadie and Schaefer, for an incredible job. I mean, you guys always are so amazing, and I can't believe how, how good it is every time. And it's like, I yeah, I just feel like I'm part of, like, listening to old-time radio or something. It's just so cool. Yeah, in this episode alone, I mean, we got a lot. All right, so if you have any comments, questions, theories, or uh, something we might have missed during today's show, give us an email at TwinPeaksUnwrapped at gmail.com. You can like us in the old Facebook. You can tweet us in the old Twitter at Twin Peaks Unwrap. 
Um, also, give us a five-star review on iTunes. That always helps us be more visible on that platform. But we're also on Google Play. We're on Spotify and all your favorite podcast catchers out there. But with all that being said, um, before we go, one big gigantic thank you to everybody who has pre-ordered our book. It's coming out in April. Your support means the world to us. And if you pre-ordered the uh, special preview podcast is out in the wild for yeah. all you pre-order so you, people. You, you pre-order now and you instantly get the podcast, which is yeah. almost an hour long. It's like 45 minutes or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's a little uh, – 10 interviews we've done, like little excerpts, and you can't beat Kyle McLaughlin. Yeah. To be able to – for us to sit down and talk with him, you get that. Just by pre-ordering. So it's almost like, you know, you, you get something instantly. You get something for your money before the book is even out. It's our thank you to you, really, because without you pre-ordering this book and, hit, like, hitting our goal of 200 pre-orders, it would be more of a struggle to get this book out. It really would. We're, we're self-publishing. I mean, this is like yeah. we don't have a big corporation that is paying for the printing of this book. So it really is – it comes – it's like grassroots, really. Yeah. It really comes down to the community supporting us that we're even able to put out this book. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much. 